You're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly Gimme Radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. I've been a longtime fan of Bone All, the raw black metal band hailing from California. So I was excited to learn that Marco Del Rio, one of the founders of that band, had another band called Raspberry Bulbs that is not necessarily new, but new to me at least. And uh, we were able to chat and we covered a lot of ground. And here we go. Enjoy. I found out about Raspberry Bulbs through reading Rue Morgue magazine. Uh, usually, uh, I'm a subscriber, so usually, yeah. usually I get the magazine and I read it pretty much cover to cover. And uh, I came up across a piece that was written about you guys. And uh, they mentioned yeah. that it was, uh, you know, member of Bone All, who I'm a fan of, uh, Weird Fiction, and um, somewhat inaccurately, initially I thought inaccurately, but calling it black metal. So right away, yeah. I was uh, intrigued by the whole thing. So I uh, did a relative, um, you know, as, as much as I could, a dive into the band's catalog. And I discovered that Nick Forte oh. was also involved. So, yeah, Nick uh, from Rorschach and a bunch of other bands. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So as uh, I started reading up more about the band, I realized that to me, it was a new project but the band has been active since 2009. Now, uh, is that, is that information correct? Yeah. I mean, it's not new really in any regard. Yeah. It's been around for, um, over 10 years at this point. It's just kind of changed shape a little bit over the years. Um, and just had different people involved over the years, but, yeah, it's kind of expanded and contracted a little bit over time, um, but essentially it's it's been a, a band, a project that I've been working on for over 10 years. Yeah. Now, did it start out with just you doing things on your own and then slowly putting members together? Yeah. Yeah, so I went through a lot of different changes. Um, started out as just a solo project of me, um, had quite a bit to do with just like moving around. Uh, so I'm from Northern California and then I moved to Southern California to Los Angeles for a little bit and was just by myself and uh, started working on music on my own, trying to learn how to play the guitar and just kind of, cause I played drums and bone also. Right. Just kind of, uh, you know, teaching myself guitar, other instruments teaching myself how to record on my own. And so, yeah, just, it became a solo project and then kind of grew from there. And then three years later, when I was in New York, uh, I just, you know, wanted to, uh, you know, do something different with what did quite a bit, just playing by myself and was just ready to play with other people. So then I became a full band in 2012. How did how did you meet uh, up with uh with Nick? Uh met Nick, so tried to form a few different incarnations of the band with different people. Uh one of the places that I frequented in New York a lot was the hospital records yeah, store. Totally. So he put out the first uh Raspberry Bulbs L P 
his own hospital, That's Just Me. Um, that actually came out after the first time I tried to put together a lineup. That all fell apart. Then I ended up re-recording the LP by myself, and then that was released on hospital. Um, and yeah, it, that was an interesting time because I would literally go into the shop all the time because it was uh, relatively close to where I was living. And then I met Jim, Ming Nong, uh, Jim Siegel, uh, who was working at hospital and he's a drummer. And so, you know, I started talking to him and we started talking about playing music together and trying to get a lineup going. And then, uh, we were just looking for people, talking to people. And then Nick Forte was also coming into the, st- the store because when he would visit New York from upstate, um, when he'd visit the city from upstate, he would go to hospital. And so then Jim started talking to Nick and then, uh, Jim mentioned it to me. Then we all started talking. So it was through a hospital shop, basically. Right on. Was that during the era? Cool. Yeah. Was that during the era when a hospital was in that downstairs space, or when it actually had the uh, the larger ground level uh, location? Yeah. So it was in all of its glory when it had moved up to the the ground level shop, um, and Dominic was living, actually living in the store at that point. Um, but yeah, it was yeah, it was definitely. I didn't live in New York for that long. I was there for about five years. Um, but it was one of the sort of most interesting kind of cultural like hubs uh, that existed while I was living there. Yeah, that was actually a decent time, man. I remember um, a lot of that stuff's gone these days in uh, in New York, and um, yeah, there was this weird sort of uh, heyday of uh stuff like that shops like hospital and um you know other various places around the city that at the time you don't realize how cool that stuff is and then when it's gone you realize that you just experienced this uh this weird era that uh that doesn't exist anymore yeah yeah totally um and um yeah i mean i think it was it was like the 2000s, you know, early 2000s um, through like whatever, around that time, whenever it closed. Yeah. I think it was kind of, uh, it just like embodied what was happening uh, in the city at that time. Um, and just like a, a record store like that being in Manhattan was also weird. Uh, like an underground, really, really underground music store being in Manhattan, being in the Lower East Side. Um, I know that there was like Kim's and stuff like that, but uh, it wasn't really like those. Those stores didn't represent like a subculture. Um, no, I mean hospital, very specific, man. It was like you know noise, black metal, you know, very, uh, very much like uh, you know, very fringe stuff compared to what you would get at, at yeah. Kim's. Yeah, so totally strange going in there, you know, in the Lower East Side. Uh, which is such a touristy, like highly trafficked spot in the city, and then there's like hospital where people are just like hanging out. So it was cool. We actually, um, when Bono did a tour in 2009, uh, Dominic helped us set up the show, uh, and I forget exactly where we played. But when we when we came into New York, we just drove the van straight to the hospital shop, parked it you know, a block over in the middle of the city and we all stayed at a hospital. So like, there's like 11 people sleeping on the floor. 
<laughs> at hospital. Yeah, <laughs> the good old days. So, <laughs> the good old days. It was pretty. It was, I mean, now I think about. I think back on stuff like that, and like, wow, that's kind of insane, and definitely nostalgic, and just a bunch of guys just sitting there. And I think we were in New York for you know, it was one of those uh, dates that we played where we like stopped for a few days and hung out and were there for like three days. And we're just like sitting in the store for days, just like looking at the records, looking at the CDs, playing, you know, playing CDs in the shop, going to the corner store, getting beer, bringing it back. It was amazing. <laughs> Bono is still so, active, I mean, you, right? Is it still active, Bono? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the other guy in Bono, um, he, you know, he's never left Northern California, um, in terms of like living anywhere else. So when I was over in New York, it was obviously really hard for us to do anything, but, um, we, you know, we, I visited California a lot and, uh, we would sort of do stuff whenever we could. So it's been consistent this entire time, but definitely has kind of slowed down, um, since, you know, with the time when I moved away. They're definitely they're like, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, uh, there's been a few things, uh, here and there. And then we've, um, been playing music a little bit more over the last couple of years. I've already been back in California, I think now for six years. So now I've been back here longer than when I was in New York. Um, we just try to do stuff whenever we can. There's actually a new Bono record coming out the, this year. So, it, and it's like, you know, our first LP came out in 2007. So that's 13 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, time flies, man. It's scary yeah. when you think about it that way, you know? Yeah. 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 There's a lot of similarities between, I mean, you know, from my familiarity, at least I can see some similarities between Bono and, and raspberry bulbs, but there are definitely some differences. I mean, the obvious one is that you're playing guitars as opposed to playing drums, but both bands seem to have like a very raw kind of hands-on sort of approach, even to the production of the records. Uh, the one thing about Bono yeah, I mean, is like that there's like this mystery around you guys. Cause like this, it's a, an analog kind of thing with Bono, you know, just cassettes and LPs and things like that. And, uh, you know, with, with, uh, raspberry bulbs, you know, there's a, there's a band camp and digital stuff like that. So, you know, from, from your perspective, yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely similarities, um, in the, in the projects. And I think when raspberry bulbs first started, it was kind of, you know, me trying to write songs that were just really similar to bone all everything that I learned from playing music and recording music was from bone all. So it was just kind of me like taking that style and trying to put my own spin on it. Um, and you know, everybody saw, uh, you know, noticed a really strong similarity between the music is, um, almost like one and the same. Um, it, but then like the band just kind of kept going and kept progressing. And, you know, I've been upset, you know, music is my life. So, um, it just kind of kept evolving and, and changing, kind of doing different things. And then eventually it expanded to include other people. And once you get other people involved in a, a project and like Nick Forte is playing guitar. So 
you know, I, I, for the most part, write all the songs still and sort of create the starting points uh, for songs. But it, when other people are involved, it's going to have that other type of influence. It just kind of seeps into the music. Um, but I mean, and then again, it's like, like I said, everything I learned from recording, I learned from Bonewell, which is very simple, uh, primitive, like recording techniques. So I use the same type of four track to record Raspberry Bolts that I do, uh, that we did with Bonewell. Um, it's just used in a slightly different way, but it's like that I would say is one of the core things that has to stay consistent is that we're recording to cassette four track or we did one album on a cassette eight track. So that's like super important um, just in terms of capturing the rawness of, of the instruments in the right way. Yeah, that definitely adds a unique sort of characteristic to the music, you know, and uh, you know, one, one of the things is, uh, I mean, Nick, you know, obviously he was in Rorschach and then some of the other stuff he was doing later on, like, um, uh, uh, what was it? Com- like computer cougar and uh, beautiful skin. Was that the name of the band? Uh, not reflecting. Skin. Yeah, beautiful skin. Yeah, so like, much, so many different uh, musical incarnations. Yeah, and and that has like that angular kind of vibe. That um, I mean, when I listen to one of the differences is like with Bone All, there's like this raw punk thing going on, and then there is this like very subtle element of bands like uh, like kind of like British bands, like The Fall or something like that, or or. Uh, you know, that kind of like, you know, Mark E. Smith kind of vibe to it. And I think that when maybe when Nick, see, I'm, I'm writing your guys' bio here, you know, <laughs> it's like maybe when Nick joined the band, that kind of his style kind of lent itself to uh, to fortifying that sound a little bit, I think. Or it might be. Yeah, wrong. <laughs> to some extent. I mean, I think I think it's also just realizing um you know, a band can sort of be taken in certain directions and kind of leaning into that a little bit. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny how the, the riffs and all the starting points are very simple. And I, in my opinion, I think a lot of them could be easily translated into like a bone all type song. But if you just take it a little, if you take it a step in a different direction and you change up the rhythm of the drums or something like that, um, it kind of creates this whole other thing. So it's like writing that line um, that's sort of right in between genres and it kind of, it shows you all the different similarities that are like right there uh, at an intersection that, that touches on a lot of stuff, uh, punk, metal, and then whatever you want to call something like the fall. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's like, you know, The Fall in itself is like a really raw, stripped down band that's, I think, extreme in like in its own regard, like especially like Dragnet, like the, I think it's the second Fall album. It's like that album is insanely like just horrible sounding for the sort of uh, reputation that it has. Like it's a very well-known band and well-known record, but they're like kind of a crazy band in itself too. Yeah. I read somewhere that the title of, uh, of the, of the new album, um, before the age of mirrors, uh, it, it's something what you said earlier about recording to cassette and using four tracks. And 
Um, that reference for the record title, there, there's some kind of significance to that as to like a, a cultural shift from like uh, the turn of the new millennium or something like that. Is that does that connect with like the production choices and things like that with the band? Yeah, for sure, one hundred percent. I mean, I think it's something that that can be like discussed in many different ways for a really long time, but it's yeah, it's just kind of pointing to like the ethos of the band. Um, and definitely like you could relate it to the recording, uh, technology, like cassette four track, like being, uh, really strict about sort of, you know, how you treat the music and how you're going to present it. Um, and then, you know, like raspberry bulbs was a band that, we only, it was similar to Bono. We would only release our music on cassette tapes and LPs and just sort of trying in those like simple ways of just like keeping an underground tradition alive. Uh, and just, you know, the layouts, the way, you know, using a Xerox machine to make the cover, using a typewriter to, you know, make parts of the design. So it's actually just trying to, to keep this tradition alive that's sort of being dragged on like way too far in the future um, in, in whatever ways that we can. And I mean, you know, I grew up like right around the turn of the century was, you know, I was 16 when uh, it was the year 2000. So I am part of this generation that like just fully saw technology come in and change everything. Like when you, I think when you're 16 to 18 and, and all of that, like that's kind of when you're the most sensitive to like what's happening culturally, especially I was super into underground music at that time. So I just like noticed everything. So it's just, you know, trying to remind people that history is really important. You need to like look into the past. You need to understand where things come from. And obviously the most important stuff is going to be coming from before 2000. Um, and like, I experienced that firsthand and then, you know, it's, it's just something that me and all my friends and contacts are constantly talking about. It's like Jim and Nick, they're both older guys. They're in their forties. And so they actually like lived the culture of the eighties, which is amazing to me. Um, and so it's, it's just like, that's the time that I'm obsessed with. I, and I think that right now everything is just horribly confused and um, really, really difficult to understand. And I, I don't, I don't think it's a, like an atmosphere that creates good art and good music in any way. Um, and yeah, just sort of focusing on before uh, 2000 and, and before things totally changed. I tend to agree, and a lot of that has to do with just I'm in the same age group as like Nick and and uh, you know I'm in I'm in that that age group that grew up in the '80s, and uh, like I've always had a very uh, strong affinity to the physical world, and um, you know have being able to hold something in my hands, being able to actually produce something physical, um, you know it's 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 almost like the the idea of art is it starts in your imagination. And when it's in this digital context, it seems like it never actually comes to life, to me at least, unless it's like a physical object that you can put your hands on. So, I mean, I can appreciate what well, you're Well, I mean, yeah, 100%. And then it's like, 
the records go to record stores. The records are at the venues where you're seeing the band. The band is selling T-shirts. Like it all fits together and creates the subculture. And you know, those are the things that we grew up obsessing over. And um, you know, like I, I, I'm sure you remember the feeling of uh, like when the first record came out with your music on it. You know, like, oh, yeah, because you're because you're obsessed with those things when you're a kid and you're like, man, records are so interesting and cool and you start collecting them. And then eventually it's your own band's music on a vinyl. And it's like it's one of those moments where it's one of the best moments of your life. Um, and then, you know, like uh, and then, you know, you have a band, it grows, it, you know, you do more and more. And then as as your band is evolving and stuff, it's like the ground is falling out from under you, like as you're making progress. Uh, and I think that's something that's really specific to the, the 2000s, uh, early 2000s was just when you're, you know, people are still selling records and, and all that, but it just, it was just changing so fast at that point. How, how easy was it for you to get your hands on a functioning four track recorder? I mean, it seems like that's kind of hard to come by these days. Yeah, I actually, you know, uh, Brandon or, or he who gnashes teeth um, from Bone All, uh, he got the first one, and I think he actually bought it from a music store. So it's probably like probably right around like 2000. Uh, I think you could go to a music store and still buy gear like that. Really? Huh. I remember it was like, it was expected. It was like, you know, <laughs> I think, I think this is the story. I might be fucking it up. But it, I think it was like three to $500 for a new cassette four track. Wow. And he just had the idea and he was like, I want to, you know, this is how you do it. You record your, your band's first demo. This was a, a totally different band too, like our high school band. And um, he just picked it up at the, at a music store and then showed up at the aircraft with a blanket. I think that's the story. And then after that, it's like, then you know what it is and you know what the model is, like the Pascam classic uh, four track. And uh, then you can just find them online. And it's like, you know, now we're in the area of like eBay and stuff and um, you've been able to find them on eBay for, for, you know, 20 years now. Yeah, I remember back in the 90s in some of the first bands I played in, the drummer uh, picked up one of those. And I remember, you know, we were all gathered around this thing at the coffee table and it was like, you know, this guy figured out how to use it. And I thought he was like Captain Kirk at the Starship Enterprise trying to figure out how to use <laughs> yeah. this thing. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, those are cool, man. I, I Damn, it's like... Uh, it's it's cool because you're limited in what you can do. You just don't you don't have like this unlimited track count that you can work with, or be you can't punch in like every you know and have a click track and like all this crazy yeah, stuff these days. Yeah, I'm just like I'm not a very complicated person, and my understanding of these things very limited. So it it just works. And then one of the things where you get into it, you're immersed in it, and and I didn't realize it at the time, but it's like, it sounds good. It's for what it is. It yeah. sounds really good. And, um, then you get used to that sound. And of course we like, you know, around the same time, we're like listening to a lot of black metal. Black metal is really a lot of the times really hard. Um, 
squirting or production quality in a good way. And so we we're like, oh, we can recreate this feeling with this four track. And like it, it all just kind of worked perfectly. Um, and, uh, but yeah, like you were saying, like the limitations that are there, I think are really important because you just learn, you learn how to do a lot with a little. Um, and you know, I, I don't want things to get overly complicated. Uh, and so that's why I still, I still love the way that it sounds. I've tried to record. Not not a lot, but I've been in studios before and I've tried to record in other ways and it just never, for some reason, it doesn't work for me. Like it, it's like, just I just haven't found the right situation to create something that that actually ends up sounding good. So I always just fall back on the the cassette machines. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I I really enjoy about the lyrics is that. Um, you know, there's there's references at least in you know you read something about the band and they talk about you know you get you being into weird fiction and of course the name H.P. Lovecraft comes up, but it's um if so if there if none of those references had been made and I just got a lyric sheet, I still would come up with that only because I think if you're a fan of that type of writing, if you remove all the names, you know, like Sarnath and Cthulhu and, you know, Shubnigarath and all that sort of stuff, you take all that stuff out of there, there's still the kernel of those types of stories and those types of, uh, that sort of environment that's being portrayed by the lyrics. Like, and, and the lyrics are very, um, they have this sort of like a laconic sort of quality to them. Like they're very economical in the way that things are phrased and everything. Um, so, I mean, if I did, if I'd never read anything by HP Lovecraft and I read your lyrics, I wouldn't necessarily pick up on that, but being a fan of that type of fiction, it, it comes across in, in the, the actual stories within the songs. So, um, so yeah, I really really appreciate that. No, I mean, that's, that's great. And kind of exactly, um, you know, exactly the impression that that I, that I'm hoping it makes is that it's not just completely literal where you're just referencing something. It's more about the, the feeling and sort of the technique of weird fiction and just the overall um, atmosphere that's kind of coming through. And I, you know, it, it allows the band to, to be original in its own way and to kind of have its own subject matter, but then still trying to fit into that, that world and that tradition. Um, which again, like that ties back to the theme. It's like, you know, been uh, into that type of stuff, weird fiction and Lovecraft since I was, uh, you know, early teenager. And it's just been this thing that's to the side of music. Um, and then you kind of, you, well, I found out about it sort of through music, but it's one of those things that's like, you know, you have it in like your utility belt or whatever, but it's not necessarily related to what you're doing. Um, but then over time you just realize that they're, the two things are completely interrelated and, um, you know, there's so many different Lovecraft references in underground music and especially metal and black metal and death metal. I mean, probably death metal the most in the eighties. There's just so many like song titles that are like a Lovecraft story. In a very um, obvious way, just, definitely. Yeah. 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 In a super obvious way, but you just realize, Oh, like this is just, like totally just part of music culture. Yeah. So it's very easy to like, to tie um, those two things together. But 
I think the other thing is that weird fiction now it's like it's such a deeper thing it's such a bigger world it's it's like a huge world unto itself and metal and underground music doesn't really do a great job of of um you know showing the depth there and just showing giving insight into like this other sort of parallel universe that exists um which uh I mean, I don't think I'm really doing a much greater job, but it's like, um, I, I think, you know, the, the music should be like a gateway to certain things. Um, and it should be, uh, there's like this underground tradition of music, like introduces you to all these things, to like spirituality and to like writers and fiction and, yeah. And it's mostly like older stuff. And, um, I mean, you know, I want to make sure that the, that the band is like still like doing that, still adhering to that tradition too. Yeah. I've always, I've always kind of viewed extreme music and, and, you know, weird fiction or, you know, fantasy literature or science fiction, all that stuff sort of came as one package for me when I was growing up as well. Um, you know, writers like Michael Moorcock, I got into that through listening to heavy metal. And um, oddly, yeah, you know, Lovecraft exactly. came to me from reading Conan. And that was like way when I was like a very young kid. Before I even knew about metal, yep. I was like reading Conan. And then I found out that he was pen pals at H.P. Lovecraft. And that's whatever. That's a long story. But like, yeah, that's, totally. That's I, I just mean, discovered just, it, you know. Yeah, it's like one of those like everything should sort of potentially be a rabbit hole that you can kind of fall down, but it's, it's something that's very relevant. I think it's not, it's not it's like there, all these things are connected for a reason. Um, and, it, and it, it's because they should be relevant to the fan and to the person who's like seeking all this stuff out. Um, but exactly. It's like, you know, you would learn about maybe like Conan sword and sorcery stuff through science fiction or through heavy metal, like Sirith Ungol covers or whatever. Yeah. And then that connects to other things. And then you realize that Robert Howard was a pen pal of H.P. Lovecraft. And he's like, there's that whole era of weird fiction where there's this like circle of pen pals, like Lovecraft's peers and all of that. Um, and all of that stuff kind of branches off into different areas too. And it's just, it's so cool and fascinating and like that's what i want underground music to be i don't want it to be about um you know social media and all this like all these distractions yeah definitely and also um i mean though though i do enjoy like the really you know obvious you know occult and like satanic stuff that happens in extreme music i also like when it it goes a little bit further out on the fringes with some of the philosophies, like some of the stuff that you can find that have little to do with an actual sort of uh, orthodox idea about darkness or Satan or whatever. And it has something to do more with like this, because, you know, Lovecraft didn't really believe, wasn't necessarily a spiritual person. He just thought of like the universe as this sort of unknowable thing. And that's when when music connects with that sort of feeling that's where it gets me really excited you know what i mean yeah for sure and i mean I, like that being said I, i'm still a fan of like really blatant 
Lovecraft reference. Like, if, yeah. if your song is called Shep Niggerath, I'm like, oh, cool. And it's like a band from the 80s or like, you know, there's like a death metal band from Mexico called Shep Niggerath. Yep. I'm like, that's great. Like, just the fact that they're, you know, they're, they have these different touch points and they're into it. They're inspired by it. It fits in with the way the music sounds and the artwork looks. Like, I am obsessed with all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's like, I don't want it to be on the nose. Like it's 2020. It's not 1986. Like we have to, you have to kind of try a little bit harder, um, to like put your own stamp on it and not just, you know, have a song, uh, that's like a Lovecraft story. Now the name raspberry bulbs is, uh, kind of an, uh, an unusual name. So where, where did you come up with that name? Yeah, again, it's like it's not um, it's it's not trying to be blatant in references. Like, rather, it's trying to come up. You know, it's like a it's a name that ended up as like I was writing lyrics and I was writing poetry, uh, and it was from a line in one of the lyrics that I was I was writing. The raspberry bulbs were mentioned in that line, and then. So then at the time I just decided to make that the band name. Um, and you know, it's, it's funny because I was just doing this little side project to bone all, and it was just going to be this tape and just like the, you know, the drummer like releases a solo project on a tape, like just kind of this really low key thing. And so I put it together and I wanted that to be the band name. And then I wanted the artwork to be pink so obviously all the records are pink. Um, and, uh, I didn't on it. I didn't put too much thought into it. I'm, I'm, t- I'm totally fine with the band name and I'm fine with what I like, you know, it excites me like what it is, but at the time I was just kind of putting these things together and wasn't really thinking about, um, you know, is, is it really, are people going to be really, really confused by it? Um, I did, I, I definitely knew, like, if you make a pink sort of underground tape at the time, it's not going to look like all of the other black metal tapes that are in a distro or whatever, you know, or on, in a mail order. Like, it definitely was intended to, like, stand out like this really, really strange thing. Like, I, def- I wanted it to be just, I wanted it to, to totally stand out as this, like, strange object, like something completely different even though it looks like a punk demo tape or, you know, an underground demo, um, within the context of the time, it like, it stands out. Um, but I didn't like, I didn't, uh, necessarily think that I was going to be like still talking about the band name 10 years later. <laughs> <laughs> no, Cause you know, when I first, uh, but no, so, so it's like, um, I could go into the details of what the the poem was about, but it was about, so the first demo tape is called the raspberry bolts finally burst with fluid. And it's about, um, you know, it's about the plant, like a raspberry plant and the, the, the fruit keep growing. So the, the fruit, they essentially can't stop growing and they grow to the point where they explode. And so it's this kind of gross image, but it's like, uh, like a life form that has too much energy inside of it and doesn't know when to stop growing. And it just kind of, uh, goes too far. So that's kind of the idea. 
No, I was hoping it was something like that, actually, because, uh, you know, when I first came across the band name, I thought it was like, you know, this kind of garage, like psychedelic sort of thing. Um, and then I delved a little deeper into it and, uh, you know, listened to the music, started reading some of the lyrics. And then um, I was, the imagery that came to my mind was something strange and uncomfortable like that. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's funny because I've talked to like over the years, like I've, you know, talked about this many times and so many people were like, oh yeah, that's like a very like Bay Area, like psychedelic rock kind of name. And the, you know, the thought never even crossed my mind. You know, there's like strawberry alarm clock and the Moby grape and like, and that's what people think when they hear the band. So that's what some people think when they hear the band name. And I'm just like, whoa, okay. Like I totally understand why you're getting that vibe, but I never would have thought that at all. <laughs> so, but it's a, it's, it's definitely confusing. I understand it. It's, it's hard to kind of wrap your, your head around. It takes a second to like, for a person to, to, it takes effort for a person to try to put it into context. And, um, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know, it's, it, it definitely fits the more you get into the listening to the music. Like I've all like to date, I, I only really are familiar with like three of the records at this point, you know, obviously the new one, uh, deformed worship and privacy. And I think you guys have more than that out though. I think, right. Like you have like a bunch there's, of demos so one, and crazy stuff. Like yeah. That. There's, and then there's one LP, the hospital record. That was just me. Um, that's the first LP. Is that still available anywhere? Could I buy that at a distro or something like that? Or is that online? It is not available. Yeah. It's not available physically. It's online. Um, at this point. Uh, but yeah, nature tries again. That's the first record. Okay. Um, but yeah, I wanted, the first thing I wanted to say was that it's awesome that you found out about the band in Rue Morgue. (laughs) And it's like that. See, like I'm so, I'm, I was so excited that they wrote and wanted to do an interview because that's exactly the kind of thing that I'd want to do. It's like, yeah, I don't really know room org. I remember like Fangoria growing up, um, as like the horror magazine, but it's like, that's exactly what I wanted, what, what I would have wanted to do as a, as a 12 year old is like do an interview in a horror magazine. Like that's so cool to me. Whereas like, it's fine to do an interview for a website or, or whatever, but, it's I you know I never like fantasize about doing that when I was a teenager. I, I share the same sentiment about that, and um, <clears throat> I mean I don't know if you've checked out the, the the actual issue that you guys are in, but it's got this beautiful painted cover with Christopher Lee and Chad. Oh Jones yeah, on it, you know? no, I have it. Yeah, I have the issue, and I'm I am probably going to subscribe to the magazine because it's so cool. It's like I wasn't like, I like horror movies when I was a, you know, a kid and stuff, but I, I never was like obsessed. I was never like into the culture of all that kind of stuff. But now I, you know, I think everybody just watches a ton more movies now and it sort of touches on everything. It has like books, it has bands, it has movies, it has new stuff, it has old stuff. Um, I just love shit like that. Yeah, I've, I've been a, a longtime subscriber, and and I'm I'm very much a horror fan. Like I I'm ever since I was oh, a kid, awesome. I've been way into horror, and uh, I think it's probably the best magazine out there that covers horror because it 
the approach is a little bit different. It's not so much about who who buys more ads in the magazine and you know, it really is more of like really highly curated content as opposed to like who spent more money on advertisements, you know. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's and it's I, at this point again, it's like it's even surprising that a magazine can still exist and that it can have subscribership and that someone can find out about your band through getting a magazine in the mail or or whatever at a at a newsstand like I don't know. That I I love all that stuff, but it's um it's just uh it's hard to like to stay involved on that level and to try to keep those things alive. Yeah. Have you um being a fan of HP Lovecraft um you know, my my opinion at least is that it's been very hard to capture his work on film. Um have you seen the new Color Out of Space uh film? I have. I actually got together with a buddy who's another like weird fiction um, fan, and we watched it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we were like, uh, we were like, eh, it wasn't bad, uh, or like, it, you know, it wasn't that bad. But again, yeah, it's. I don't think it's. I don't. I don't think you can really translate it into a film. Um, I don't think I I don't I can't like right now think of a a way that you could like effectively do it I think and I think I think that horror movies are something that's that are kind of very different from weird fiction too like it's like the there's like the mystery there's the absence of things in weird fiction that makes you so like fixated on it because you just you know you create your own impressions it creates an impression on you you create your own visuals, you sort of, you know, it's kind of like you have to fill in all these gaps, whereas the movie can't leave any of the gaps out um, or, or they haven't really found a a way to do it. That's effective. Um, So it was like, it was a fine movie, but it was just kind of a, you know, kind of a certain type of, of horror movie. Um, And I do really like, uh, there's a movie called Dagon, which is like, Mm -hmm. I don't know who the director, there's like Brian, Brian Usna is the the producer on all these movies. Yeah. And it's like, there's reanimator there's from beyond. And then there's Dagon. And those are three of my favorite horror movies. Yeah. The uh, Stuart Gordon um, uh, directed those who recently passed. Yeah. Away. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh shoot. Yeah. I didn't know that, but yeah, I knew, um, I knew that there's the, I always thought the the producer was the guy who made the movies, but it's like him and the director did those. And yeah. they're, they're some of the best horror movies ever, but they're like really great horror movies. They're not necessarily like really great works of like Lovecraftian art. Yeah. That's, that's how I would, I would say the same thing because, uh, similar to what you said, um, uh, you know, the Lovecraft stuff and weird fiction in general, there's not a lot of action. It's not like there's like zombies chasing people, you know, across a post-apocalyptic landscape or anything like visual like that. There's a lot of things are told like in flashbacks and there's like atmosphere, which doesn't necessarily trans translate into, um, you know, an interesting film, you know, it might be something you can look at maybe, but then again, you know, this col- the color out of space is this color no one's ever seen before. So now we've seen it, 
or we've seen someone's impression of what it might look like. And that's kind of, you can't really succeed with an effort like that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, like even the movie in itself is kind of abstract. They don't ever show like a monster that, you know, there's like, it's a lot of like body horror kind of stuff. Like people kind of start deforming and it's kind of like the thing with all the like body horror stuff, which is cool, but um, they don't really show the monster, but it doesn't, it doesn't, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it needs to be in the written there's something that really lends itself to the, the written form um, that just like, it, it just leaves that impression on you. It just keeps you wondering um, the like mystery of it, the implications of it. It just stays with you. I mean, I remember like reading the color out of space and there's a part in the story where he talks about how he thinks that the trees are moving or he saw it. Like he wasn't sure he was in a weird state of mind, but, he thinks he thought he thinks that like the trees were moving. And I remember reading that and actually like, like feeling freaked out by it. Yeah. Exactly. But then if you think about like, in, and then if you think about it in, like a movie and you're like, Oh, like the tree moved, like the branch moved and it like grabbed this guy. Like that would be, it's so stupid in a movie and it's happened so many times in different movies where like someone gets wrapped up in like a vine it it just uh, you know there it's two totally different ways of um of like executing something and it it made this crazy lasting impression on me when i read it in the lovecraft story but then if it's in a movie it's like i don't know it doesn't work yeah i, t- I agree with that i mean i i think that um i mean just our minds the way we translate that written word is different for everybody and then there is something lost i think like when you're reading something, um, one of the reasons why I love you know reading literature so much is that there is that connection of like your mind assembling a series of images and a different version of reality, and then when someone else translates it, it's their own very subjective uh, point of view on that same sort of thing, and it just doesn't. A lot of times, it never really meshes together very well. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean. I think the movie was totally fine. I think they did it like sort of the best job that they could. And then obviously it kind of has to be like modernized in a bunch of different ways. Um, But with with those things, it's always going to come down to like the subtlety and it's like, you can't show too much, but you still have to, you, you still have to make this weird. You still have to, impress the viewers and, and try to accomplish that. So it's, it's not easy. I mean, I definitely feel like we're, we're living in like a, I think there's going to be a big Lovecraft Renaissance in the, like these 20, the 2020s or whatever. And I think there's like a lot of comics coming out now. There always have been, but I think there's going to be more than ever uh, coming up. I mean, there's going to probably be movies. I'm just scared, like really scared when there's going to be the big blockbuster like uh, Call to Cthulhu movie. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm I'm just terrified. Like, like what Vin, that Vin thing Diesel is starring like. in it or something like <laughs> yeah. that. You know, like Vin Diesel and uh, you know. Yeah. Jason well, there's <laughs> there's that guy. There's that guy Guillermo del Toro, and yeah. he's like a really really mainstream movie guy now and he's talked about how he's been trying to do call to cthulhu for like the last like 20 years and 
he was going to do it. And then he's in the studio, like pulled the budget. And so I don't know. I mean, he's like, he's a real, he's like a horror obsessive. I'm not that crazy about his movies. Um, but I feel like somebody's going to do it soon and it's not going to be good. Well, thanks a lot, Marco. I appreciate taking time and doing this. And, um, you know, the, the new record's out on Relapse. And I know that just based on what we discussed for the last hour or so, that you're not uh, a very big fan of, like, social media and all that sort of stuff. But where can people uh, that would be listening to this connect with you guys online? Yeah, I mean, Relapse put up a band camp, um, just like how they do with all their bands. So there's that sort of... Um, way of finding the music and checking it out and just you know just gotta dig around like everything's on the internet at this point so we're we're on there um i don't yeah i don't have any social media or anything like that on purpose just to try to uh you know silence a, a very loud world of media and stuff um but yeah, I mean, anything you could want to know about the band is, is out there and pretty easily accessible. Cool. All right, man. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio weekly podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care.